dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. It's commonplace to hear people say that things are happening today that have never happened before and that social tensions today are unique. However true that statement might be, it needs to be grounded in history. In point of fact, the political tensions and social tensions we suffer from today have roots as far back as the industrial era. The encyclical Rerum Novarum by Pope Leo XIII addressed many of these tensions, and by studying them, we can gain jewels of wisdom for our approach today. Thanks everyone for coming back to the St. John Leadership Network, where we are doing a special class here with you on Rerum Novarum. Now that's a fancy term, of course, and it means the new age or th new things to come. Some people would like to say it's, it's translated as revolutionary spirit or the spirit of revolutionary change. Now, I don't really know <laughs> how they get that from Rerum Novarum, but the point is that it, it, there's a, an upheaval that was taking place in the 1890s, uh, which was really occasioned by many of the marvelous inventions and technological changes of that era, but that caused tensions all the way throughout society, almost as if we were to say the world was evolving into a new way of being, a new, a rerum novarum, right? Uh, a kind of new spirit and that the, the changes in technology were, were coupled by a lack of oversight in finance, but were, were occasioning the most rapid expansion of social dynamics, social changes, that in the end would, would culminate in World War I, World War II, and the historical changes that, that we are suffering and, and that we are enjoying also today. And so I wanted to go back into this encyclical with you because there are jewels here of wisdom that the church has never let go of. This encyclical, for example, was commemorated on its 40th anniversary by Pope Pius XI, on its 60th anniversary by Pope John XXIII, and on its 100th anniversary by Pope John Paul II, right? And then, of course, it was made reference to by Pope Benedict and made reference to by Pope Francis. This is where the church really begins to address the, the changes that industry and technology actually effect in our daily lives. And Pope Leo XIII, who wrote this in 1891, gives a, a judgment on things that allows us to make good judgments today and navigate the world that we live in today. So what I'm going to do is actually just go through the encyclical with you in a series here and, and help you to, to digest some of the jewels that are in there. It's not a question of making a commentary and all kinds of things that are academic. I'm not interested in that for you. You're not interested in that either. But as a Christian leader, you need to be able to make proper judgments of how the Bible should be applied to the real situations that we have in our businesses today. 
And, and otherwise, I mean, like, why am I a Christian leader? If the Bible isn't my foundation, if God's word and God's revelation isn't guiding me, then what is, right? Someone else's revelation or someone else's word is guiding you. And this is, well, that's not what we're doing. We're following Jesus Christ into our businesses. What does he have to say about the tensions between capital and labor or the tensions and, and hiring practices? What kind of things that can we gain from the Bible to help us make concrete decisions in the world of business? Well, you know what? A whole bunch. And when we're dealing with Pope Leo XIII, we're dealing with an intellectual giant who has really thought this through and given us in a very concise statement some principles to, that will guide us. And I want to gain the jewels that we can uh, from that. So we begin by just putting ourselves in the context of 1891. I mean, there's a lot of things that were happening. Cy Young was pitching at the time. Uh, Wrigley gum was just being invented. Thomas Edison patented the, mo the motion picture, right? The camera for motion pictures in 1891. Electricity had just been invented 10 years before then. Nikola Tesla was doing his, his coils, energy coil for electricity, right? There's a lot of invention that was being coupled with heavy industry because as we know, these technological inventions like say electricity well, then you had to create the wires, you had to lay the wires, you had to insulate the wires, and, and then you had to invent the lamps that would go along with it in the houses. I mean, and that's just a real small thing, let alone the power that that would do to transform industry, eventually laying the weight for electronics and then into, into robotics. And I mean, the world was changing very quickly and that change uh, uh, from technology was drawing the workforce out of an agrarian society deep into the hearts of the cities. This was, the, you know, right before Upton Sinclair, for example, would write all of his different things in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, just detailing all of the abuses that were happening, the immigrants coming over from Europe. This is post-Napoleon and post-Napoleonic wars in Europe, which had decimated uh, you know, entire countries and laid people into a real state of abject poverty. They sought refuge in America for this and many other reasons. But then that huge wave of immigrants was seeking labor and yet not having labor laws to protect them. They found themselves in deplorable situations where the rise of industry and the abundant resources of labor combined to make an age of incredible prosperity. That and, to be needless to say, the lack of financial oversight, uh, proper oversight uh, by the government. So you put all these things together and you're looking at an age of incredible explosion. And that's the first point that I want to make when we're looking at this encyclical is that today we act as if, many people act, not all, but many people act as if the circumstances today have never been seen before. That, and, and in many ways, they're right, right? There were always, there's something new about things. But social change and the discussion of a new era of living and a, an overthrow of an old way of being in the favor of something new, well, I'm sorry, folks, but there's that been that discussion for hundreds of years. Okay, you can go and look at what Napoleon did in France uh, when he overthrew the, the ancient regime and established his new form of tyranny. You can, I mean, this has been a constant in history. And when Napoleon uh, conquered all of Europe 
and put it underneath, you know, his own new empire and call himself an emperor for that, for that. I mean, matter. People were reacting to it. Call it, say, the patriarch of Moscow, for example, issued a statement saying Napoleon is the Antichrist described in the book of Revelation. That's a pretty dramatic statement, especially from a high churchman of the time. But the patriarch of the Orthodox Church in, in, in Russia saying Napoleon is the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, that, that's a lot. Right? There was a lot of panic, a lot of fear, a lot of, of, of upheaval that was very sad and had devastating consequences for many people. But we lived through that, and that was the turn of the, of the 19th century. And the turn of the 20th century, we have more upheaval. Right? There's this, as, as the Pope listed here in the very first sentence, he says that the spirit of revolutionary change, which has long been disturbing the nations of the world, should have passed beyond the sphere of politics and made its influence felt in the cognate sp sphere of practical economics is not surprising. Okay. Now remember, this was written in 1891. And that's the, the, the point I want to make for you today is that this document is relevant. Yes, there are going to be some things that are going to be changed that aren't going to be the same. But the idea that we have a social upheaval happening and how does the church respond to it, especially from an economic point of view, well, my, my friends, th this, is, uh, this has been done in 1891 and it gives us insights. I want to gather those insights with you. I want to learn with you how he judges these things in the light of scripture so that then we can apply them to our present circumstances today with the same wisdom and sagacity and being rooted in our Catholic tradition, but also being of our understanding of what Scripture is demanding of from us. And so I'm excited. You're going to see a lot in this document, and it's going to strike through the heart of things and allow us to be better leaders today. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. All right, so I know what a lot of you are, are thinking. You're at the St. John Leadership Network with me. You're trying to understand uh, your world, role as a Catholic leader. And you're going to say, what is the point of all of this uh, historical document from 1891? Well, I'd like to say two things about that. Number one. You could say those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it, okay? So we live in a situation today which is very analogous to the one they found themselves in 1891, and I'd like to learn from it. My goodness. I mean, are we really going to throw that out? No, of course not. The second thing I'd like to say is that the beauty of this particular document is that it represents a principled way of thinking, Meaning that the thought that's contained here flows from things that don't change, from truths, in other words. And since the truths don't change, even though their application might change, well, we can gain from knowing that truth uh, an application in today's world that can guide us effectively. And so that's what I want to do. So right off the bat, he begins, right? He says, the spirit of revolutionary change which are the rerum navarum, right? It's, a, it's a, the, the, the spirit of the new things, which has long been disturbing the nations of the world, that that should have passed beyond the sphere of politics and made its influence felt in the sphere of practical economics is not surprising, right? So right away, he's like, this, le this letter is not going to deal with politics. It's going to deal with the way that the spirit of change in politics is affecting the eco economy. Very first jewel for us, 
right? That to understand that whatever happens in the heart of the human person, in the mind of the human person, right, will make an impact in, in politics. And when politics exercises its influence, economics is one of the first fields where its influence is felt. But let's go back over to the beginning here because that can make a lot of people afraid. They're like, that's right, this whole thing is crazy, the culture today, the situation today, okay. And they use these vague terms like culture and situation. But let's go a little bit deeper and say, how has the human heart been at the source of all of this? The culture doesn't generate itself, right? Politics don't come out of the vacuum. It's the human person in our understanding of truth and where we make a stance that generates the culture, that influences the politics, which will regulate the economy. Things, in other words, begin at the source of, of you, really, your minds, your hearts, the choices that you choose to make, your sense of freedom. And whenever God is at work in a nation, he always begins by be working in the heart of the citizens, by working inside of each one of us. This is the great message of Christianity, that our freedom is found within. And free people who are free within will eventually create systems that are free without, free on the outside. Right? But the worst thing that we can do is say that somehow our politics determines us or our economy determines us or that, or that our culture and what artists are doing on stages or in various museums or whatever they're doing determines us. Yeah, that, that definitely has an impact on us. That has an impact on our kids. What school boards decide is very important. We need to engage in all of those things. I totally, under, I totally understand. But we need to engage in it from a perspective of hope and from a perspective that's rock solid in our confidence in God, a perspective that comes from our freedom. We are Christians, in other words. We are those who have received an incredible grace from God to know Jesus Christ in his fullness. We need to take that grace and that fullness and bring that to bear in our world instead of acting like the world somehow gets to dictate its terms to us. On the outside, that might be true for a while, but the hope is always the same. Culture comes from the human heart. And yes, the human heart can be shaped by culture, unless it's shaped by something greater, namely the grace of God. If you really want to make an impact in our world and resist all of the nefarious and negative things that are floating around in our world today, then put faith in the depths of your heart and inculcate faith into the hearts of your children. Bring them to the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the Bible, the truth of, your, uh, of the sacraments. Bring them to the power of Christ. And then they'll not only stand firm, but they'll create a contrary change. Culture, in other words, is always in flux. And its inflection point is the human heart. And therefore, there's always hope. There's always hope for change. So back to Leo XIII. He writes, The elements of the conflict now raging are unmistakable in the vast expansion of industrial pursuits and the marvelous discoveries of science in the changed relationships between masters and workmen, in the enormous fortunes of some few individuals and the utter poverty of the masses, the increased self-reliance and closer mutual combination of the working class, and also finally in the prevailing moral degeneracy. All right, so there's six things 
that he puts out for us there as the, the elements that are being mixed up in all of this conflict that we're facing and that we're facing again in 1891, he wrote this. It's 130 years ago. And he's like, oh, the conflict is raging, right? And he puts where these elements are, right? And most of those elements are very practical things. I want to just point out to you that if you were to read that in the present day circumstance, you'd say, yes, it's the same thing as the big bankers are trying to redefine morality or where you have financiers who are involved in government, international politics or whatever you might have. You have the same elements that are raging. You've got the relationship between the capital and labor. You've got morality and its definitions. You have the, the expansion of industry and, and, and the wonders of science, right? You got this whole list of things. They haven't changed. And the reason I guess I'm pointing that out with such emphasis is because I want us to understand that the reason you are leading and the reason why you have your positions in the world is because you can bring the influence of Christ to bear on those things. So he's listed off the battlefield, in other words, saying this is where the, the field of battle is and how it's demarcated. But who are the soldiers in that field of battle? Well, it's you. It's you and your positions as you manage, as you own, as you decide, as you invest. I mean, uh, where you're going to put your money and what you're going to put your money behind, you are, you are in that field and you've been put there by Christ so that you can radiate his presence, his truths, make decisions that really benefit other people that are ethical and that are rooted in God. If you've been given any fear of power and influence, in other words, it's so that you wield the power to lift up your human, fellow human being and that you influence this world with the light of God. This is an amazing thought. And I, that's why I want you to hold your head high and not look down at yourself for what you do. The Pope continues with this amazing sentence. He says, The momentous gravity of the state of things now obtaining fills every mind with painful apprehension. Wise men are discussing it. Practical men are proposing schemes. Popular meetings, legislatures, and rulers of nation are all busied with it. Actually, there is no question which has taken deeper hold on the public mind. Doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds like he could have written that about us today. Well, so the question is, what are we going to do about it? And I'd like to say we're going to lead. We're going to respond with the light of Christ. The question is how? And the Pope gives us some teachings on that further on in the document. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. So we're reading Rerum Novarum, an 1891 encyclical by Pope Leo XIII, because there are jewels in this to help us understand what Christ is asking for from us in our leadership today. In paragraph number three, he says, for example, that the, some opportune remedy must be found quickly for the misery and wretchedness pressing so unjustly on the majority of the working class. For the ancient working men's guilds were abolished in the last century. That's, of course, the, the 18th century. And no other protective organization took their place. Public institutions and the laws set aside the ancient religion. 
Hence, by degrees, it has come to pass that working men have been surrendered, isolated, and helpless to the hard-heartedness of employers and the greed of unchecked competition. All right, so he's immediately taking the side of the working class, and he's making an interesting point. He's making the point that the, the secularism of the state doing a side with religion has, be, has left the working class bereft of protections that came from religion and came from the church in terms of protecting the rights and dignity of workers. I just think that that's interesting. And I'm sure historically there can be all kinds of debate about, about that. And, and I'm not qualified to enter into that debate. But I will say if I follow the line of the Pope as something reliable, that there's a beauty here to behold and that our Catholic faith, our Christian faith, has an impact on the way that we approach the way that we work. There are guidelines, in other words, and principles coming from the Bible and coming from our tradition that help us to guarantee the rights of the workers. To guarantee not just their rights, but to promote the welfare of everyone who works for us. And that that mindset, according to the Pope, is different from the mindset of a purely secular working person. And I say this because I need to remind you time and time again of the importance that your Catholic faith has in you at your workplace. It's just so important because I hear so many people saying, Father, I don't know the different, what difference it makes that I'm a believer when I'm at work. And, and I just kind of shake my head. I should, it makes all the difference because it's going to define not only the way that you work, but the decisions that you make. And here you could put it in real practical terms. It's going to define the way that you treat the people who work for you and the vision that you have of the entire enterprise. If you vision, in other words, the enterprise as being purely driven by profit and therefore that the ethical norms of profit and profit making determine the ethical behaviors in the workplace, you're going to have a very work, different workplace environment and a very different way of treating the people that are around you. You're going to approach the whole idea of work from a very selfish and in the end materialistic uh, perspective. Jesus has a different design on work. He wants work to actually uplift everyone who does it. Well, that, that needs to be represented, guys. That's why you have your businesses and that's why you're managing your people. It's because Christ wants to be there in that working sphere through you. Now, the question is, so then it's like, what, what does my faith have to do with my work? Well, it has to do with everything in the way that you work. It might not change the products made, but it does make, change the way that you make the products. And here's him putting this right here. As soon as public institutions and laws set aside religion, it's made the workers uh, surrendered, isolated, and helpless to the hard-heartedness of employers and greed of unchecked competition, right? And then he, he keeps on going. He, th to this must be added that the hiring of labor and the conduct of trade are concentrated in the hands of comparatively few so that a small number of very rich men have been able to lay upon the teeming masses of the laboring poor a yoke little better than that of slavery itself. Wow, that's pretty strong words. Well, exactly. And that helps us understand why Jesus has you where he has you. It's because the way that you're going to approach work is a human way. And that needs, how do I do that? Well, that's why we're at the St. John Leadership Network. It's what we're trying to do here, right? But 
Right now, let's focus in on paragraph number four because he says the socialism represents a response to that that he condemns. He says to remedy these wrongs, the socialists, and by this, I have no idea how closely this uh, uh, is aligned with present-day socialists. I don't want to be saying things out of proportion. This is the socialism that he's condemning in 1891. Okay, and I'll leave it up to you to make the decision of how that applies to today. Again, that's beyond my scope. But here he's writing, 1891, he says, socialists working on the poor man's envy of the rich. Isn't that interesting? Working on the poor man's envy of the rich are striving to do away with private property and contend that individual possessions should become the common property of all to be administered by the state or by municipal bodies. Okay, so he's saying there are some out there that say we should do away with people's right for private property. They hold that by thus transferring property from private individuals to the community, the present mischievous state of things will be set to right inasmuch as each citizen will then get his fair share of whatever there is to enjoy, right? But now watch this. He condemns that. It sounds tempting, right? You basically give up private property. The state will take care of you. All will be well. And he says, their contentions are so clearly powerless to end the controversy that were they carried into effect, the working man himself would be among the first to suffer, they are more, moreover emphatically unjust for they would rob the lawful possessor, right? They would take away from you your right to own things, distort the functions of the state, right? So they would radically change the, the, the role of a government and they would create utter confusion in the community. It's very interesting. So again, I'm not going to get into, you know, the, the condemnation of that. Is that an extension of today's socialism or not? I'm not equipped to say that. But I am equipped to point out that he develops in paragraph number five, this amazing analogy saying you have the right to property because property is something that you procure by money and money is something that you procure by work. And so since you did the work to get the money to buy the property, your right to have property is in the same line as the, your right to be paid for your work. And therefore, it's, it's a sovereign uh, truth. And as uh, John Paul II upholds this in Laborum Exertions, where he actually goes on to say that everyone has the right to earn a living based upon what they do with themselves by working. And this means that work is much more than gaining profit. Work is an extension of the dignity of the human person. And he's going to talk about that more later on in this document. But what I want to finish with you today is by re-emphasizing re the incredible vision that Christ has and that the Bible gives us that the Pope enunciates here for this world of work, that it's not separated from our culture and that it's certainly not separated from ethics. The people that will unite the power of work and the truth of work to God's vision are the leaders in the workplace. It's going to be you. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.